My name is Matthew, and I am visiting here, Father Matthew. I don't ever call myself that, but John does, and so I go by it when I'm in this room. Um, but um, it's a gift to be here. I've had the, the pleasure of preaching before, but even better, of just worshiping with you, and um, I love this church. It's good to be here. As you may know, uh, Father John, who is the rector of this church, he's on sabbatical for a number of weeks, and uh, this week, I believe, Mother Jana joined him, and so they are enjoying the broader world, and, um, and we are all here in Hotlanta, where Summer finally decided to show up. Um, we're spending uh, the summer in the text from Genesis, which is uh, sort of a step away from what's normal. If you know, we typically focus on the gospel text as part of our sermons, uh, but for the summer, we're going to be in, in Genesis. Now, if you, like me, grew up in Sunday school, you may think of Genesis as a collection of children's stories. And that's how it was presented to us, Adam and Eve and the talking snake, Noah and the ark, uh, the Tower of Babel or Babel, I don't know how to say it, um, Isaac and Abraham, Joseph and his many-colored coat. Now, if you have since being a kid and looking at flannel graphs and all those stuff, if you've gone back to those texts and reread them, you realize that they were quite uh, repackaged for us as children. Uh, they were presented in very friendly, kid, kid sort of ways. And they are, in fact, on the surface, very um, uncomfortable at times, sometimes even disturbing stories. And that's not even to mention the ones that aren't included in the children's Bibles, like when the angels come down from heaven and get a bunch of women pregnant and create a race of giants, of which I am a direct descendant. These, <laughs> these, are, these are strange stories. They don't fit into our, our categories. Um, in chapter 11 of Genesis, uh, we have the Tower of Babel, which is, you know, uh, on the, uh, it's like, oh, okay, so there's a tower. And I remember being a kid, and they were like, and they wanted to build a tower to heaven, and that would have been really bad. And everyone's like, why? No one's allowed to ask that. Um, because then, then they want to get to God. And then we actually have God speaking in Genesis 11 and saying, he's with the divine council, whatever that is. And he says, oh, no. <laughs> What if they do this? What if they pull this off? This is in the Bible. <laughs> if they do this, then they will be, everything they set their mind to going forward will be possible for them. We must stop this from happening. Let us go down and confuse their languages. Now, it's easy to see how the God who is presented in the book of Genesis, uh, and especially in these first 11 chapters, which the scholars call the primeval history, how it's hard to necessarily square them with the heavenly father that was presented to us um, and, and shown to us by Jesus. The one who he just said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but those who after killing the body can cast someone into hell. And you're like, okay, that does sound scary. And then the very next breath he says, but I tell you, you are more value uh, than many sparrows. Therefore, I tell you, do not be afraid for your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. So this is the God that is presented to us in the perfect representation of God in Jesus, the son and yet, when we're dealing with these texts, we have to reckon with the fact that there is some strange stuff in here. Now, two weeks ago, Mother Jana, she, was, uh, she presented this uh, sort of Genesis study to us. She presented to us this figure of Abraham. So out of the fog and out of the haze and the chaos of Genesis 1 to 11, just as the languages have been scattered all over, out of this comes a single person. And, and we now know from, you know from the future, we can look back and say, ah, this is the entrance of a main character on the stage. 
I mean, Abraham is, he's as central as it gets in the Bible. He is in nearly every book of the Bible, more than half of the books of the Bible mention him directly. Uh, the God of the Bible is known forever as the God of Abraham. To this day, if you're watching CNN and there's some sort of debate between religious scholars and secularists or whatever, they will talk about the Abrahamic God. This is a person who in many ways is the embodiment of what the, the Bible gives us about who God is, and yet... We do not have to wait for long before we discover that this man, this, this um, Abraham, is not the hero that we might suspect. He is uh, deceptive, he is um, ambiguous, he is insecure, and his offspring will be as bad and worse than him. The first family of the Bible uh, on which the whole story of Scripture is, is birthed is a family of crooks and swindlers. Uh, they are incestuous and sexually craven. And this is to remind us from the beginning, do not go to this book looking for heroes. In fact, as uh, Mother Jana told us a couple weeks ago, we see in this that God is telling a great story. This is the family by which, through whom I am going to bring recreation to the world, but I'm going to do it almost in spite of them. That God chooses to use broken people because he wants it to be clear that the things happening in the world are not, that we are not the main character that, uh, that he is. So two weeks ago, we were introduced to Abraham and we're told Abraham's 75 years old and he's given a promise. God comes to him unexpectedly. First time God's really speaking uh, in, you know, directly to a person other than, I guess, Noah, which is you know, a, a different thing. And he comes and he says, I'm gonna do something great through you, Abraham. I'm going to, he's called Abram at this point. I'm gonna do something great through you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then a few chapters later, he says, I'm gonna give you this land to dwell in in which your nation will bless the earth. And Abraham is childish, uh, childish. He is, but he's also childless. And he's 75 years old. And we all know it's hard to be 75 and have kids. It doesn't happen a whole lot. And they knew that then too. And his wife is 10 years younger than him. She's 65 years old. But, you know, God, anything could happen. So he waits for this child to come. He waits 10 years. Have you waited for anything for 10 years before? Probably some of you have. It's a long time. And while that 10 years passes, Abram becomes 85 years old. And his wife also ages 10 years because science, right? So she's now 75. And we all know that it would have been a miracle for a 65-year-old woman to get pregnant, let alone a 70, 80, 90-year-old woman. We also know that it isn't necessarily a miracle if a 70, 80, 90-year-old man happens to get a person pregnant. And so Sarah comes up with a plan and she says, I think if this is gonna happen, we're gonna have to do this ourselves. And so she takes her young, and we'll just call her beautiful, I don't know why, beautiful slave, Hagar, and says, you can sleep with Hagar and, and have a child. Now this is both culturally acceptable, it is legal, and it is very practical. Because there's no way we know at this point that Sarah, who has never bore a child, is going to bring anything into this world living. And so she gives Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham impregnates uh, Hagar, and a child is born. Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael comes in to the world. But this is not the promise. 
This isn't what God was talking about 11 years prior when he comes to Abram. He had something else uh, in mind. And so that's where we were last week. Chris, Father Chris came and he talked about the three visitors coming and saying, no, there's still something for you yet and speaks the promise this time directly to Sarah, which is really awesome. And now we are fast forwarded to chapter 21 where we ended last week. A boy is born, little Isaac. It's been 14 years since Ishmael has been born, okay? And we're at the point now where they're having a celebration for Isaac because he has been weaned. You know, it's, uh, it's like, congratulations, you did something everyone has to do. It's like a kindergarten graduation. But they're having a celebration for him because he has managed to stop drinking his mother's milk. And his 14-year-old older brother is laughing at him. And Sarah blows a fuse. Understandably, definitely. Maybe a little bit of an overreaction? Sure. The Bible is, again, full of normal people, like you and me. Most of our overreactions um, are just that. But she says, I want the slave and her kid out of here. They shall not inherit alongside my Isaac. So Abraham has done the thing that most of us would try to do, which is, He's in an impossible situation. He has an impossible promise in front of him. And what he does is he tries to come up with a practical solution. And what he does here makes sense. Can I just tell you something? You make sense. The things you do, and and, and even when you're on the outside of someone, you're like, I don't understand why they're acting this way. If you were on the inside of them, you would. You'd understand because people make sense. And they're trying to figure out how to square what God has said and this idea of like having having a lineage, having a nation, let alone come out of him. And yet Abram has brought all this chaos into his family. There's infighting immediately. Sarah and Hagar, there's jealousy between them. And now Isaac and Ishmael. And so Sarah says, this person has to get out of here. And interestingly, the Old Testament uh, scholar, Walter Brueggemann, he he paints this really funny picture of what happens next. And we we read it, but maybe you missed it. So, So Sarah comes to Abraham at this party, at this weaning party, and says, get her out of here and her kid. And Abraham is all distraught. And so he goes over to the side of the party and he has like a sidebar with God, you know. And so he's over there and he's like, oh, she's really mad, God. And she wants them out of here. And now we can understand why he feels really torn up about this because this has been his son for 14 years, you know. I mean, it's been his whole world, Ishmael. I mean, yeah, Isaac is great, but I mean, Ishmael's been his life. And Hagar, she's part of the family, right? And so she's like, they, she, they want it. they're gonna have to go. And God says, just listen to your wife. Maybe that's the word for you today. <laughs> God says, just listen to your wife, do what she says. And then he says, don't worry, I will take care of, I'll take care of her. I will take care of the son and of Hagar. And the next thing we know, they're packing their bags and they're wandering off into the wilderness, presumably to die. Now, let's have our own little sidebar. That's the story we're gonna, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's the big, those are the big blocks. Now, if you haven't been here and you don't know the Bible super well, which a lot of us don't, that's kind of how we got to where we are. Some of you know this, but probably a lot of you don't. This text is really special in the Bible because it receives special treatment that very few Old Testament stories get. And that is that it is commented on in the New Testament. It's a story that 
a New Testament author looks back on and says, I have some interpretation for you about this story. And that interpretation comes to us from St. Paul. It comes to us in a letter that he's writing to a church in Galatia. It's actually probably the first letter of his that we have in the Bible. It's one of his earliest letters. And he is the youngest, he is, as he's going to be in any of his letters, and the most immature uh, in the letter of, of any of them. But he's writing this letter to combat this thing that's happened in the Galatian church. This church was founded on his teaching of the gospel. The gospel being that Jesus Christ in the cross, God has through Christ accomplished everything necessary for people to be saved, everything necessary for the world to be healed, everything necessary for us to be invited and ushered into the kingdom of God. And these outsiders, these, these what were called Judaizers, these Judaizers had come in and they said, that's not how it really works. If you're going to be brought into the Messiah, if you're going to be brought into his kingdom, you have to become Jewish which is you have to obey the law, you have to, Leviticus, you know, read Leviticus. You have, to, you have to do Leviticus and Deuteronomy, parts and numbers, a little bit of Exodus. <laughs> you gotta do these things if you wanna be brought into the kingdom of God. They're saying essentially, and see if this sounds familiar, um, if you want the good life, this is kind of our language, if you want the good life, it's something that is earned, not given. And the idea that people can just waltz into the good life without having put in the work is unfair. It's unjust. The idea that people can receive the benefits and blessings that other people have had to work very hard for is unfair. We've played by the rules you must play by them too. Or to put it in their language, the people of God are not simply marked by a spiritual birth. They are also marked by Mosaic law. They are marked by circumcision. They are marked by religious duty. These are the things that make a person fit for the kingdom. I know this is an argument that you don't care about because we're not talking about these things anymore. But Paul is writing a letter because he wants you and me to know something very deeply. And that is that that is, in his words, not true or a lie or a different gospel, as he would call it. That this idea that God hasn't done enough for us in Christ and now what is required of us is, is some form of obedience in order to be at peace with God. And Paul says, that's not true. The thing that gives us peace with God has already been finished, complete. It couldn't be more complete. You can't add to it. And then he gets to this text. He gets to Genesis 4. He's writing this letter to say, the whole point of the cross is that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the idea that it's somehow insufficient, that what we need is the cross plus obedience or the cross plus circumcision, or I'm gonna step on some theological toes here, or the cross plus a right understanding of what the cross was. The fact that we need any of those things in order to be saved is, uh, is a lie. And then he says, I'm just gonna read it. I wish we had it on the screen, but those of you who are auditory, be blessed. Um, <laughs> Tell me, you who are subject to the law, will you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. One, the child of a slave, was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, was born according to promise. Now this is an allegory, Paul says. These women are two covenants. One, uh, in fact, is Hagar from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where the Jewish people received the law, where Moses received the law from God that he then transmitted to the Jewish people while they were uh, after leaving Egypt. 
Mount Sinai, bearing children to slavery. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And this corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem. This is, I don't have time to get into this. This is heavy. She is in slavery with her children, but the other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 54, Rejoice, you childish one, childish one, childless one, man. I hope I don't have to say that word too many times today. You who bear no children, burst into song and shout. You who endure no birth pangs. For the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. And then he says, now you, my friends, are children of promise. Like Isaac. But just as at that time the child who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the child who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her child. For the child of the slave will not share the inheritance with the child of the free woman. So then, friends, we are children, not of slaves, uh, but of the free woman. And then you may know the very next thing he says is, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Do not let yourself be subject, therefore, to the yoke of slavery. So this is the theology that Paul is getting from this text. And it's interesting because it's helping us understand this thread that is from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end of the Bible. And that is that we naturally, in our human instincts, are always trying to find a way to do for ourselves what God intends to do for us. Sarah and Abraham do this. This is how Ishmael is born into the world. And most of our lives are spent bearing Ishmael's, us doing in our own strength, trying by our own practicality, our own ingenuity to bring into the world something that feels like this is what it's supposed to be. And God all along is saying, I made you to receive be on the receiving end of promise. This, I want it to be clear from the beginning that I'm the one doing this. I'm the one, I'm the one who has made this possible. Paul says that these two women are allegorically speaking to us about two different ways to approach God. One is I obey and therefore I am saved. The other says I am saved, therefore I obey. One depends on human effort, the other on the promises of God. One depends on grace, the other on duty. Paul interprets Hagar as the old covenant and Sarah as the new, and he's making a point. He's saying that these are two approaches to God, and one results in Ishmael's and the other in Isaac's. And Paul's big takeaway is you and I are heirs of promise. You're, I mean, he's speaking ethnically, really, but he's like, the fact that you're here, friends, is a miracle. The fact that you're here is a miracle. It shows that God has blown the doors open on the church and made it so that all people can come into it, supernaturally born into this family. As John 1 would say, born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but children of God, through God, by God, by spirit. Now, this is a beautiful allegory, and I, um, I feel like there's a lot to say about freedom versus you know, striving. We sang several songs this morning about this idea of being slaves in some way or another. Many of our texts, Jesus talked about being a slave versus a master, and Paul in Romans, again, talks about being a slave to death and a slave to sin, and these are important things for us to think about, and they're things we're going to think about as we come to the table in a minute, but I just want to say one thing, because I, I have to say it, because it's in the Genesis passage. It's not in Paul's interpretation of the passage, but it's really good news, and that is this. Paul takes these two women, this story, and he turns them into an allegory to prove a spiritual theological point. Thanks be to God, it's true. But in the real lived moment of Hagar and Sarah, can I tell you something great? Hagar and Ishmael are not an allegory. 
They're not a statistic. They're not a prop used by God to teach some theological principle. I'm not saying Paul was wrong. I'm saying that God saw Hagar and Ishmael as children, as people to love and to pursue, not as people simply to use to make some point. And the reason that that's good news for you and me, friends, is because God doesn't use anyone as a prop. Every person is distinctly loved and known by him and pursued. Every person, and all of us in here probably feel like either that person who has been forgotten by God, or we know people who we feel like they've forgotten God, or we have children and we wonder if they'll ever come back to God. And just to let you know that God doesn't use individual people as props, as allegories. He pursues each one. And he finds Hagar in the wilderness, and she is dying. She has carried her 14-year-old son at this point, so she must have been quite strong, and laid him under a desert bush, a stone's throw away, because he has presumably passed out from dehydration. And she's not going to go as far away as she can, but still see him, but not have to look at him, because he's going to slowly die And she doesn't want it to happen in front of her eyes because this boy was her whole world. This boy that had come to her through injustice, this boy that had come to her because her master's husband had been forced upon her and she had no choice in it, but it was hers. It was her boy, but it wasn't really, it was Sarah's boy, but it was hers. And now she's losing it. And God sees her in this moment and he hears the boy's cry and he finds her and he says the words that Jesus says to Mary, in the garden on Easter morning, why are you weeping? Do not be afraid. Lift up your eyes. Take the boy by the hand. And she finds water. And then he says, I'm going to make out of this boy too a great nation. Now, the Muslim people, they claim this as their origin. This is the founding of the Arab nation. I'm not going to get into all that means. I'm just saying that that's how they understand and interpret this. That is the birth of another nation, another people. And here is the big idea behind all of that. And I just think it's great news. The way of freedom is available to everyone. All people are invited out of slavery, out of servitude, out of dutiful obedience. All people, everyone, Everyone is invited. Everyone has the capacity to just simply receive by grace what God's already done and then to live like it's true. It's not something that is only for some people and not for others. Any person can receive this. Jesus tells a similar story in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 15, he also tells the story of two sons. He says there are two sons. Now, we call it the parable of the prodigal son, which is a misnomer because half of it has to do with the prodigal who goes off and you know, squanders his father's wealth on prostitutes. And the other half is about this dutiful, rigorous, religious, scrupulous older brother. This older brother who's always done everything right and didn't go off and squander his father's wealth on prostitutes, but stayed home and kept the farm and milked the goats and did all the right things. And the boy comes back. You probably know the story, even if you're certainly somewhat new to church. The boy comes back. He's poor. He's ragged. His clothes are gone. Everything's gone. He's he's, he's a mess. And the father receives him. Doesn't just say, oh, get in your room. I'll deal with you later. But instead, wraps his arms around him, puts his clothes on him, puts his ring on him, puts his shoes on him, throws a big party for him, kills the fattened calf. And that's how God receives all people. But I'm going to read this part because Jesus says it better. 
Jesus says, now the elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the slaves and asked, what's going on? And the slave replied, your brother's come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he got him back safe and sound. And then the older brother got angry. Do you know that feeling? Can you relate to that? All of us have that in us. That thing that says it's not fair. It's not fair that these things are happening in my life when I've done everything right. It's not fair that I'm getting the short end of the stick when I've served so much and given so much. It's not fair that his job is taking off and mine is stuck. It's not fair that they get to have kids and we don't get to have kids when we would be better parents than them probably. It's not fair. I get angry. We all have that, that instinct, that, that he got angry and he refused to go in. You know that. I refuse. I don't want to see you happy. What does the father do? Does he stay in the house with the younger brother? No. Friends, this is the good news. The older brother is not an allegory. The father comes out and he pleads with him. He says, come in. And the son replies, listen. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. There it is. Some of us feel like that towards God. We're doing, we're doing, we're doing, and then suddenly something doesn't work out or we get really sick and there's no cure for it. And Listen, I've been working like a slave for you for years. And you never even gave me a little goat to eat with my friends. Whatever your version is of that, you have one. It's probably not that. But when this son of yours came back who's devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed a fattened calf, and then the father said, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But of course we had to celebrate and rejoice because your brother is back. For he was dead and is now alive. He was lost and has been found. The good news of the gospel is that all, regardless how low or high we find ourselves, no matter how clean or dirty we find ourselves, all are invited in through the same door, and it is the door of grace. All of us find our way around the same table, and that is found solely through what God has done for us. The good news that all of us enter into today, when we come forward, when we pray in the moment, when we kneel, all of us are simply saying the same thing. It's all because of grace. I don't deserve any of this. The gentle, persistent pleading of God with all of us, with all of us. God finds us as we were in the wilderness, dying of thirst, and gives us water. And so as the hymn says, and I'll just read this in closing, lay your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete.